I thought we'd start by sidestepping uh, the news a little bit uh, and talk about a, an interesting programme I saw on TV3 on Monday. It's just started 8.40 on Monday nights. Tell us more. Okay, well, this is uh, the show is Taranaki Hard, and uh, it's not often, uh, I know this sounds a bit mean, but I don't think it's too often that you see something that feels truly original uh, and unexpected in local content anyway on primetime on our main TV channels. But um, Taranaki Hard last Monday, I think it, it really is quite different. It captures uh, the lives of a bunch of young people growing up in Waitara in Taranaki. And uh, the, the young people also, the, some of their parents feature in it. They're all between the ages of 18 and 27. All very different people, just with that one thing in common, their town, Waitara, and, uh, you know, the, the comfort and familiarity of the place. Some of them are quite fond of it. Some of them are a bit scathing about it. And, of course, it's got limitations. But, yeah, that's the thing that holds it all together. It's, it's really interesting. Is it new in the fly-on-the-wall doco? Well, yeah, that's the thing. I guess those kind of docos aren't all that new, you know, picking up what, what are generally ordinary or unexceptional uh, people. But um, What did you th- say? Ordinary and unexceptional people? Well, I said ordin- <laughs> ordinary sounds kind of rude, doesn't it? Say ordinary people, so as, as if you're not one of those. But, you know, there, there's nothing well, so remarkable. does unexceptional. Uh, I suppose it does. But, um, We're sort- all exceptional, Colin. Yeah, I think ordinary sounds worse. Sounds like a judgment, but unexceptional. Um, the thing is, they're not famous, right? You wouldn't know any of them, and that's why they're there. They're trying to pick out... Uh, um, <laughs> I'm just doing the same thing. Everyday folk uh, from Waitara. But what, it's the way it's made, which is really interesting. It's not just sort of pointing a camera at these people, hoping they'll be entertaining and harvesting the best bits of, of the fly-on-the-wall footage. It's very produced. Um, and the producer, I think, is um, a guy called Justin Hawke, who has also done, among other things, uh, the Patrick Gale Weed documentaries this year and last year. Um, very different kind of programs, but I think some of the same stylistic touches uh, that that uh, yeah, quite classy. And the the other thing is that the the subjects themselves, these young people uh, who are in it, are very self aware and aware of how the production is playing out. Well, that's the feeling I got when watching it. And in the spin off, uh, the reviewer Chris Schultz, I think he put it um, much more succinctly than I could have. He said the social media savviness. And reality TV readiness is on display constantly in Taranaki Hard, with many of the show's stars uh, seeming to know exactly what the camera wants from them. And as an example, um, there's one character, really engaging guy, Kuru, who's I think 18, the former head boy at the local high school, who now doesn't have a job or much to do. And so he spends his day playing video games and so on. In the opening scene, he gets out of bed and tries to sort of motivate himself, have some breakfast, jumps in the shower, and he's a fantastic singer. And so he's, when he's in the shower, he's belting out this tune, and you're sort of looking at it, the water running off him and thinking, oh, how did they film that? That's not, that's not very fly on the wall. So it is a kind of contrived production. Um, but like I say, that, that really does add to it. Um, and yeah, Chris says, so fully formed are these subjects, you can often feel like you're being introduced to the cast for a new drama show, not a not a documentary on supposedly everyday young New Zealanders. But the other part of it is um, regional New Zealand, you know, is all but absent in most of our mainstream media a lot of the time, particularly on television. It's a very metro-dominated uh, world production-wise. Um, so it's it's pretty rare. I think one, one example of, or exception uh, that it reminded me of actually was a drama that ran on three recently and I think the same time slot that was called Head High about a high school rugby team. Um, but I think in terms of you know documentary, real life, I think the Taranaki Hard 
does get you closer to the real lives and behaviour of um, young people today, and, and it's just something I haven't seen on local TV before. You've got a great name as well. Yeah, yeah, I think <laughs> I so. It. Yeah. Who else is in it? Well, there, there's always a worry uh, with this. I mean, there's, there's there's a whole. I would say there's at least a dozen uh, people in the appearance have featured, so they can flip between the two characters. And you know, there's always a worry that they might be sort of acting. You know, because when these this sort of observational doco really uh, got going, it became huge in the UK in the 90s. But people started basically auditioning when they were in, in them rather than being them themselves. And I don't know if you watch much of the GC when that was on a few years back, but that was definitely a case of that. The people just loved being on camera. And some of the characters were actually trying to be models and socialites and so on. Um, but just to give you a taste of it, this is um, from the first episode. Indeed, right at the start, I feared we might be seeing one of these shows where you know, someone was trying to act up a bit for the camera. So this is um, this an ext- uh, extrovert junior petrol head called Axel. Um, he was uh, introduced and described by his mother uh, while he was filmed hooning about on the street on his motorbike. You know, he has spent over $8,000 on fines. He's lost his licence five times. When he was a little boy, he used to stand by the letterbox and wee on people when they walked past. Mum's like, oh, I'll tell him to put it away. <laughs> they said, oh, he's probably got ADHD, but he didn't. He had ADD, it's absent dad disorder. <laughs> yeah, so when I saw that, I thought, oh, no, they found a guy who's a bit of an egg, doesn't mind, you know, acting up for the camera. Uh, but actually, you know, later... Uh, his mother was actually quite affectionate. She she did call him an effing bogan, actually, and it was quite, um, you know, felt like it was a bit awkward. But actually, he opened up uh, talking to the camera about his dad that he doesn't know and isn't there. And, uh, you know, it was, it was really good. There's ca- another character who's really quite uh, affecting. Is, um, a, I think she's 16. Um, oh, yeah, because of footage of her 16th birthday in it, uh, an anxiety-stricken schoolgirl who really struggles with it but was filmed in the school interacting with her classmates so it's very intimate and um yeah and i think i think really succeeds and i think there have been other reality shows which film people and which allows the characters to fill out a bit there was one called big house a while back about weight loss uh, for example um it, you know it did a bit of that where the producers had succeeded in the same sort of way but i think this um takes it to a new, new level and uh, there's three more parts i recommend people tune in eight forty, tv3 on monday nights and do we learn anything about the town? Yeah, well, that's the thing. The town is the thing that holds it together. But the focus is really on the kids. But, um, you know, there's no getting away from it. It is a town that's seen better days. And uh, actually another bit we can hear now, this is the mother of a guy called Leon, who's a really flamboyant character, um, has a social media following that I think in his group is actually bigger than the population of Waitara itself. Uh, but this is his mother, uh, Pat, talking about, um, you know, how things used to be. After a while... Businesses started to close down and it kind of became like a coast town. Waitara's strong. It's a strong little place. I look at all the families and the the young ones that have moved away from here and a lot of them are coming home. You wonder why? I mean, you think, what are they coming home for? There's nothing here. Maybe it's just Waitara. And all with a backing track. Yeah, that's right. Um, no, it's, it's a good show. I think people should tune in. And, uh, and you know, you, you learn about the town, you learn about the kids. It's, uh, it's really promising. I hope they can keep it, keep it up. 
And this week, a big story here was staff apologising to readers and Māori for racism and racial bias in its journalism. Uh, That's happening around the planet, isn't it? Yeah, this is fascinating. We will look at that in Media Watch in the weekend because all that content is still coming from stuff that done this nationwide audit of things. Uh, but I, this has also happened in the US when the Black Lives Matter was was happening, uh, Black Lives Matter movement, when that was at its peak and the protests. Some newspapers and media groups did the same sort of thing. And uh, the Los Angeles Times is fascinating. What they did was an even more thoroughgoing audit of you know decades and decades of, of its output uh, looking for racial bias. And then they did a similar thing to stuff in that they said, well, this is what we've learned. Here's the evidence of it. We're throwing it all up in one big uh, blast for you to read. And um, for, for the LA Times, it's kind of complicated because, you know, LA ethnically such a complicated uh, city in history and, and mix ethnic-wise. Um, but there's a great um, range of stuff to read, but also a short documentary. And I put a link to this on the Media Watch, Midweek Media Watch webpage that's on the uh, Media Watch section of the RNZ website. So go there and take a look at it if you would like to. And we'll hear a little bit about it here because what they did was they discovered that when they'd had crisis like the uh, riots in the 60s and then again after the Rodney King episode in 1992, they found they just didn't have enough black reporters to cut through and get the coverage that they wanted. One of those is their veteran staff writer, a guy called Greg Braxton, and this is what he recalled about uh, those post-Rodney King riots in 1992. After the dust calmed down a little, there were some editors, uh, Linda Williams and some reporters who noticed that there were all of a sudden a whole lot of black bylines on the front page and on the front page of Metro that usually weren't there. Black reporters weren't a usual part of Metro, but then during a crisis situation, all of a sudden we were of great value. Yeah, so that's Greg Braxton, and uh, he he is one of just a handful of black reporters they had at the time. And I think what he was saying there will echo with you know some Maori reporters because part of what stuff has discovered is that and, and indeed its chief executive Sinead Boucher has said we need to boost Maori representation in our newsrooms all around the country. There still, uh, after many years of recognising this problem, aren't enough to report issues properly. Well, Colin, how did the LA Times respond to what they discovered? Well, like stuff, they did a pretty uh, full apology and have made a pledge uh, to their own citizens that they will do all they can to better reflect the city that they represent. Um, And when uh, the reporters went through the coverage, they found one thing they put at the top of their list, though, is this really strong theme of anti-Asian and and specifically anti-Chinese sentiment. And if we're going back 100 years ago, there were some editorials that were very stark. uh, And this is, you know, prepared by the staff of the paper. It's not letters to the editor or anything, talking about the menace of the heathen Chinese. And um, remarkably, and to its shame, the paper now admits uh, that it was only in 1979 they had the first Asian-American reporter uh, enter its newsroom on the permanent staff, a guy called Andrew Chen, who was then horrified to be called uh, Charlie Chan by his new colleagues. Uh, and then not till 1996, it had its first Asian-American newsroom editor uh, or section editor. But now <clears throat> the intriguing thing is it's been saved by an Asian-American. Uh, four years of effective bankruptcy, the paper was rescued by a, a pharmaceutical entrepreneur, a guy called Patrick Soon Xiong. And he wrote an open letter uh, to readers once he took over saying, we've, we've got to change this. It's mission critical to us to reflect everyone who lives in the city. And, you know, I think in more ways than one, because if you find that you're, you're now relying for financial rescue on uh, 
ethnicities that you've previously alienated in the history of your paper. Um, you, you certainly don't want to do that if that's where your potential saviour might lie. So even for enlightened self-interest, uh, I think media companies have a good reason to uh, make sure uh, that they embrace all ethnicities. Absolutely, and and very similar history here, definitely, because when you go through papers past, which I did um, in research for my novel March of the Foxgloves, I couldn't believe the racism in New Zealand papers 100 years ago. It's just astonishing. Yeah, it's kind of a treasure trove, that, isn't it? Papers past, because every now and then it, come, it comes up in searches that I do when I'm looking for other topics entirely. There's so much content there, all searchable, and it's quite remarkable what you stumble upon. And even... Um, uh, it's not quite the same thing, but interregional jealousies, the stuff that comes pouring out of these papers, the suspicions about people who live like somehow elsewhere, uh, let alone, you know, other people of other religions or, or other ethnicities. Yeah, quite remarkable stuff. But yeah, hopefully with initiatives like the one Stuff's embarking on now, uh, we are moving on a bit. Hopefully. Very good, Colin. And uh, you've got, uh, you uh, expand on that story in Midweek Media, I'm sorry, not Midweek Media Watch, in Media Watch. Yes, in Media Watch in the weekend. We'll take a good look at that uh, that stuff initiative and we'll talk to people who have in the past tried to address the same problem and they've had a good read through of this uh, stuff charter and uh, all the principles behind it and we'll see what they make of it and whether they think it really might make a difference in, into the future.